Department of Transportation has weighed in on how it intends to regulate driverless cars, but the government's approach to the matter might surprise you. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. DOT's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, is an obvious source of regulation and control over driverless vehicles. And, in fact, the agency has laid out a new policy on the subject, revising its previous statement from 2013. This time around, DOT is adopting a lighter regulatory touch, offering a 15-point safety assessment for automakers that's entirely voluntary, at least for now. While the agency intends to formulate strict safety standards, it's leaving it up to industry players as to how they'll meet them. Joining me to discuss the fine points of DOT's new policy on driverless vehicles is Katie Thompson, partner in the law firm of Morrison Forster. She's a former senior counsel at both DOT and the Federal Aviation Administration with extensive knowledge of the legal and regulatory ramifications of driverless cars. We'll find out what it all means for manufacturers and riders alike. So here is my conversation with Katie Thompson. Katie Thompson, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. So the U.S. Department of Transportation come up with a proposed policies to encourage the widespread introduction of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars, another way of putting it. Were you at all surprised by what DOT came out with in terms of it seems to offer industry a little bit of leeway, it seems to be a slightly lighter touch than we've seen in federal regulations and rulemaking before? What is your immediate reaction when you first saw those rules come out? I was actually very pleased to see how flexible the proposed guidelines are, particularly because this is a, a critical area that offers tremendous benefits in terms of safety, outcomes, and also mobility and access. So the department's been working on these issues for quite some time now. About three years ago, they put out a policy that was much more cautious and expressed some con- safety concerns about the quick and widespread adoption of these technologies. And when you pivot forward three years, I think you've seen a federal agency that has learned a great deal and is really bullish about the technology and the benefits that it can provide. So education, you think, is the reason why the DOT has, in fact, pivoted to a somewhat different approach? Education and wanting to seize the opportunities that these technologies provide notwithstanding the occasional accidents such as we've seen in the semi-driverless, not totally driverless system in that Tesla vehicle resulting in the death of a motorist, that obviously did not cause DOT to take stock and even go in the other direction. No, and, and if you think about it, there's obviously risk in everything that we do, even with technologies that are driven 100% by humans. And in fact, the human behaviors are the cause of roughly 94% of crashes on the roads today. So again, NHTSA is looking to build on the opportunities and set a platform for everyone to use and understand 
how we work together as a society to introduce, explore, and deploy in a more widespread fashion these technologies. So you think it, it proposes to do a pretty good job of balancing the concerns of, of safety on one hand with the need for innovation on the other? Yes, absolutely. And I think what you'll see when, you, when people read the um, guidelines is there really is significant flexibility throughout, but there's also a very cautionary note where NHTSA says, and by the way, if you get it wrong and there's unreasonable risk, we will enforce. So it's uh, we encourage you to innovate, but be careful, cautious, and thoughtful about how you do it. Explain to me how it appears to work with regard to what I understand to be 15 benchmarks that are laid out that companies or in, that automakers need to follow, and yet given, a, again, a certain amount of leeway and autonomy in terms of how they meet those benchmarks. How much wiggle room is there, and exactly how does this look like it's going to work? The proof is in the pudding. It does lay out the 15 um, criteria for the safety assessment, as, as you mentioned, it's all voluntary at this time, so it certainly identifies key areas that are relevant to assessing the safety, the redundancy, consumer education and understanding of the technologies, cybersecurity, privacy, but it's all voluntary at this point. So a big question is whether and to what extent manufacturers and others developing these technologies will voluntarily reveal that information. The approach will only work if they do it because NHTSA will learn more and the public will learn more and ideally over time gain more and more confidence in the capabilities of these innovative technologies. Well, as I understand it, the ideal is to allow for the sharing of information and best practices, but that can sometimes conflict with private companies' desire for the development of proprietary systems and competitive advantage. So how are we going to balance those things? That is a very legitimate concern that these technology companies have. The guidelines really do not spell out how NHTSA and their stakeholders will deal with these. They just note that the data recording and the data sharing will be critical to a better understanding of how these systems perform in practice and further note the need for the development of regulations to more specifically address how they're going to ensure the protection of the data for proprietary reasons, but also from a cybersecurity and privacy perspective. This is a first step, a first step only, and a lot of those issues remain to be explored in the coming months and years. How do you understand we're going to balance the need for federal regulation with state regulation? What would be the responsibility of the feds and what would be the power of the states in some cases, as with so many other types of regulations on the books, to actually impose even tougher regulations within certain states? NHTSA was also very clear in the new guidelines that there is a very distinct role for the federal government versus the state. And when it comes to motor vehicle safety, the safety of the car and the technologies in the car, including hardware and software, NHTSA's authority preempts state authority. States are responsible for the licensing of human drivers to the extent they're still involved, the licensing and, and testing of those drivers, the licensing of the vehicle itself just to make sure that it meets all the safety criteria and can operate on their streets, and for um, insurance and liability issues. And it, NHTSA, again, tried to establish a clear dichotomy between the state and federal role. 
The other piece of it is, though, that states do have varying requirements on the licensing of drivers and vehicles and insurance and liability. And NHTSA is pressing them very strongly to work together to have a consistent, cohesive, national approach rather than a patchwork of state laws that create confusion and are an impediment to the technologies moving forward. Well, the technology is one thing, and if you put that in the lap of the feds, that's one thing. But might it be possible that certain states, and speaking here from California, that's the one I mean most, might insist on the presence of a human backup in the vehicle? Uh, would that be something that the, that the feds could say, no, you can't do that? Or could, would the states have the right to do that? That would be up to NHTSA, and I think... This is an area where as the issues evolve and we learn more, you may see more confrontation between the federal government and state governments like California about what's appropriate. But California just last week put out proposed rules on autonomous vehicles, and it looks to me, based on initial review, that they try to adhere to the state-specific role. They do reference NHTSA's automated vehicle guidelines, but the bulk of the proposed regulations deal with state-specific types of regulatory issues. How do you interpret that in terms of their ability to specify the presence of a human backup in the vehicle? Does that Would they reserve the right to do that, or do they understand that that's not within their power to require? The California proposed regulations appear to require it for purposes of testing, so that if the technology is capable of operating independently of a human driver, for testing purposes on public roads, they're still required to have a human person employed by the manufacturer or whoever's introducing the technology and using it on the roads to be there in case of some sort of event where they need to take over control. But that's very different from a general requirement that a state might have that an individual who is capable of driving must be in an automated vehicle at all time going forward and once these have been fully deployed. So the understanding is that the end game here for everybody is truly driverless vehicles that would not at some point require that human backup. Correct. I want to get back for a moment just to the perspective that you can bring to the table in terms of your extensive experience as a former senior counsel at both the DOT and the FAA. Uh, I'm wondering how you measure DOT's uh, proposed rules against past rulings with respect to, for instance, air systems and other types of cutting-edge technology and transportation that you might have witnessed Does this seem like a break from the past in terms of how DOT has handled transportation technology, or does this seem just like uh, a continuity as far as you're concerned? This is a significant break from the past, and it reflects a lot of learnings that the department as a whole had the benefit of gaining over the past four to five years. And the difference is that in the past, the department typically identified a problem that needed to be addressed and then was very specific about how industry had to address it, how they had to fix it. And whether it was in the aviation sector, automotive, rail, it was very prescriptive standards. What the department has learned over time is they get better safety outcomes when they specify the performance that is technology has to bring, safety improvements, level of risk reduced, but without prescribing exactly how a manufacturer must achieve that level of performance. And we call them performance-based standards. 
and they really allow for innovation and flexibility in meeting the standards, and it allows the government to ensure that it sets standards that it believes safe, but without being too prescriptive as to how a regulated party meets those standards. So it's a very significant evolution. Isn't that the same approach that EPA took with regards to emission requirements for vehicle engines and exhaust systems that they keep setting rules by uh, that they with, with particular dates for the auto industry, but the auto industry keeps missing them, and that's been the case over many, many years. Was that the same kind of approach, or is there something distinctively different about the way this the DOT is going about this? It's the same approach. Um, I think the difference is, and I can speak specifically to the fuel economy standards for, for cars and trucks because I was involved in all the significant rounds of development of those standards. Again, you do not pick winners and losers based on specific technologies. What you do is explore what technologies are available in the marketplace and make reasonable assumptions about what kind of vehicles consumers want to buy and fuel prices, and you predict what will be achievable in the future. Those have to satisfy a reasonable basis justification. Things necessarily evolve over time, and certainly from the Department of Transportation's perspective, when there are significant changes or new data becomes available or the economy hits the skids briefly and that impacts compliance, the department will go back and revisit whether the assumptions and the technology decisions that were made in prior years remain valid. And you see that going on right now in the case of light-duty cars and trucks that EPA and NHTSA issued a midterm review document that lays out what their current understanding is of the technologies, associated costs, consumer acceptance, and they put that out for notice and comment to determine whether the standards should be revised for model years 2022 to 25. By the way, these rules that DOT has just come out with, do they apply to self-driving commercial trucks as well as passenger vehicles? They purport to apply to any highly automated vehicle, which would include trucks including an 18-wheeler barreling down the highway. That would be also come under the same types of regulations. Yes. There does seem to be a general consensus among people who know something about this subject that driverless vehicles, and as you indicated earlier in our conversation, will be safer than human beings driving cars, ultimately. And yet technology isn't perfect. We know there are going to be problems. We know there are going to be accidents down the line. What about the liability issues? Have you given thought as an attorney, I'm sure you must have to some degree, about what those issues would be in the case of an accident? I mean, it would be as simple a question as whom do you sue? Who do you look for for relief if there's no human being driving a vehicle? Have you thought about the complications that might arise from such scenarios? I think there has been a lot of discussion about liability issues generally and it's too early to tell. One thing that's notable, one other thing that's notable about the NHTSA policy is that it appears to expand the definition of who is subject to NHTSA's jurisdiction. So it was typically only the manufacturers of the vehicle or the parts that went into the vehicle. And if you read the policy carefully, they're now talking about expanding it to include anyone who introduces technology into a car or offers the automated vehicle technology to others. So that would include taxi services, ferry services, things of that nature, where under NHTSA's typical authority, they wouldn't have been able to touch those types of entities. And I think all of that factors into liability issues, which is an issue that is left to the states to determine, but very little 
thinking has gone into the liability issues at this point. How about the insurance implications? Has the insurance industry reacted in, in any way? How does it feel about it? And what do you think down the line some of those implications might be? The insurance industry is obviously very interested in these issues. They have already been engaged in um, drone issues on the FAA side. I think that the insurance issues will probably be easier to manage than trying to sort out the question of who is liable in the event of an incident. The insurance will be there. It just needs to be developed and tailored to meet the needs of various insured parties. It seems like the United States is pretty much at the forefront of the development of driverless vehicles, especially with regard to these rules coming down the pike. Are there other countries that are also working on this and might indeed even be more advanced than we are to whom we could look for examples, or are we kind of on our own in terms of this unknown future that we're facing? Well, I'm delighted that the U.S. really appears to be in the lead right now, but there are other countries like China and the European Union, which are also very interested in development and use of automated vehicles. And I think it's going to be an ongoing race to the finish, but I think that means opportunities for everyone. We can learn from what's going on in other countries. They can learn from us. And together, we can chart the path forward. All right. So as I understand it, there's a 60-day comment period. When did the clock start ticking on that? The clock started ticking in late September, and the date that comments are due is November 22nd. And how soon after that could we expect DOT to come up with some final rules? DOT was pretty clear that they don't intend to revise the policy, at least for a year. They plan to do it in roughly a year, and that regulations may be forthcoming, but they didn't say what they might pertain to and what the timeline might be. So it really depends on the extent of comments received, how controversial some of these aspects of the policy are, and whether DOT determines rulemaking is necessary to accomplish some or all of the objectives that are laid out in the policy. I would expect, as the administration is coming to a close, that DOT would likely signal where they're headed before the end of this administration. But that's just based on my experience at the department. Wait, but you said that DOT would determine whether rulemaking is necessary. I thought that this, these uh, proposals are going to inevitably lead to final rules. Is it possible that they would say there are certain areas of this in which rulemaking is not necessary? Yes. So the, the, there are th- really th- four parts to the proposal, to the policy guidelines. One is uh, this 15-point assessment that you mentioned. One is a model state policy describing the appropriate relationship government and states. The third section describes NHTSA's existing authority to regulate in the automated vehicle space. And the final portion concerns potential tools that may be helpful to the agency in the future as it works to deal with these issues, including a number of which which would require new statutory authority. But there's specific places throughout the document, like whether the 15-point safety assessment should be a mandatory requirement and an acknowledgement that for cybersecurity privacy issues, they will likely need to have specific regulatory requirements as well, where NHTSA has indicated that rulemaking will be forthcoming. It's hard to imagine any aspect of safety being voluntary when, when public safety and lives are at stake. I would say that for some companies who are looking for a competitive advantage, and companies who are looking to develop broad public support, 
voluntary compliance may be preferable to something that's, that's mandatory and appears to be less flexible. But you're right. I think we have to wait until comments come in and see how all this plays out before we can say this is a success or a failure or something in between. So what's your best guess as to when we will see driverless vehicles on the road just as a matter of everyday sightings and a matter of course? Five to ten years. That long, even now, huh? Even, even, with even now. Coming even out. now, simply because there aren't many out there now and there's still a lot of development and testing going on. So five to ten years for widespread deployment. Well, it'll be interesting to see this develop. In the meantime, Katie Thompson and Morrison and Forster, I want to thank you so much for joining us and helping us to understand what these rules are all about and what's going on with self-driving vehicles in the regulatory arena. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Katie Thompson of Morrison Forster talking about the DOT's new policy on driverless vehicles. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.